<laughs> we are recording. Awesome. Yay. <laughs> welcome to Justine's podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I am excited to be here and I'm here with Taria McComber. Thanks so much for taking time out of your busy day. And today we're going to talk about what it takes to design and implement equitable programs. Meaty topic. Easy, right? Yes. <laughs> so I thought before we dive in, I think people should learn about you. Tell us about yourself. Who are you, Taria? Oh, okay. That's, a, that's a, like an interview question. Um, so I always start with my name, Taria Macomber, she, her pronouns. That's how I ground the answer to that question. I have been working at um, an environmental nonprofit for the last three and a half years. And I have been spending the last three and a half years designing and implementing um, a very large statewide um, equitable uh, climate benefit accessibility program, which is putting a lot of words together. But I think in short, my project, um, which I started from a blank, blank sheet of paper and $5 million um, to what is now a $16 million um, statewide program is really focused on creating a front door to many climate benefits for California's residents. So for um, a lot of folks that want to take part in meeting, uh, supporting California meeting its very lofty climate goals, um, it can be really hard. You know, there's a lot of incentives and benefits with the fact that California is California, but it is still on that resident to figure out the huge, the, the plethora of programs that they could benefit from. And then what we're trying to do is ensure that people can apply once and benefit a lot. Um, so think of it as kind of like the common application for undergrad. Um, we're trying to create a centralized application for um, climate benefit programs in the state of California. So we've been doing that for the last three and a half years and we're, we've made quite a bit of progress. And, um, but the, the part that our communities experience is the fun part, <laughs> the part that we experience as the administrative team is not the fun part. And, and that's really where the, the designing and implementing of equitable programs really, really comes in. You know, the outcome is equitable, but the work is within the designing and approaching um, program implementation with the amount of intentionality that is required um, to really be innovative as you design a program. Um, so that's what I do on my day-to-day. -day. But before that, I was getting, I was a part of a fellowship program and I was getting my MBA in Oakley, California, which is where I met you. And um, I've just been, I've spent most of my career um, kind of sitting in the intersection of living in the intersection of being a black queer woman and then sitting in the intersection of my career of wanting to bring together principles from urban planning, principles from racial equity, principles from business administration, specifically around operations um, to see actual change in the way that we um, build programming 
and we implement process. So when people ask me, like, do you think you would have been in clean transportation, which is the focus of my work right now, electrifying transportation? I'm like, no, I could be doing anything as long as I'm able to really sit in that intersection of what will our built environments look like if the people that look like me um, and navigate space like me are at the helm. Um, so that's, that's kind of who I am. I also have a cat named Panda and a beautiful partner named Lauren, and I just bought my first home and I'm excited to have this conversation with you today. Cause it's really important. Amazing. Thanks so much for sharing about yourself and the amazing work you do. And, you know, I, you're just so thoughtful in everything you do that, um, I'm excited about this conversation but before we dive into the really the topic, like maybe let's take up a step back um, and define what is equity? What is equitable to you? Because it's a nebulous concept for a lot of people and people use it in different ways. And I don't think there's a right or wrong definition, but I, I'd like to start us there. Yeah. Um, so equity... <laughs> Equity is an interesting term and it's being thrown around a lot recently. Um, you know, equity is in financial terms, it's, you know, having stake <laughs> in building wealth. Um, and I kind of see it in that way where, you know, the, the people that are going to be impacted by the program or the process or the thing, the product that you're creating should hold equal, if not more equity in what you are designing. Mm -hmm. um, so that's how I think about equity in that sense. Um, equitable is different. So um, for a really long time, we, you know, when we were trying to visualize the difference between equality and equity, mm -hmm. um, we have that visual of people on the boxes, you know, equality is giving everyone the same box. And, you know, there's, there is a lot, there's a lot to that visual that I love to break down, but sticking with time here, um, you know, equity is giving everyone the boxes they need to see over the fence. When I think about equitable program design, I'm challenging my peers and challenging my colleagues to ask the question, why is there a fence? because we can, we don't have to design a program that has fences. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we have the power to design a program or a process or a product that doesn't even have a fence in it. That has anyone can come see the baseball game. If we're thinking about that visual, it doesn't matter if you can stand on a box because we have to think about ability justice. Doesn't matter if you can see the baseball game. Doesn't matter if you even want to watch the baseball game. This program should be universally or this product and this process should be universally designed where folks that have the greatest barriers can still access it. So that equitable design really comes in thinking about why there's a fence in the first place, not giving people boxes, thinking about why is there a fence in the first place. And for example, when, it, when I think about my program um, and the, the, my program is like a program of programs <laughs> because we're trying to garner access to many programs. Um, I give the example of um, why do we ask people 
to prove that they're they're of need. And I say it really bluntly in meetings. I say, why do we ask people to prove that they're poor? Because we don't ask people to prove that they're rich. We ask people to prove that they're poor a lot. And where does that come from? Where does where does that question come from where we have income qualified programming that requires people to continuously show that they need help? And so then I bring in my love and passion for history and say, this is coming from a Nixon era where we have welfare mothers and the stereotyping of people trying to quote unquote, take advantage of government programs. Mm. So we've created a lot of government programs in that shadow of, we have to make sure as many people as possible aren't taking advantage of this program when we know people need these programs. (laughs) Transportation is required. Transportation is the second highest cost in many households after rent or mortgage. And um, so, I bring that example up as like, if we're not questioning the fence, if we're not questioning why government programs are so rigorous in making people prove that they need help, then we're never going to get to that place of actual equitable design. We're not going to be able to be as innovative because we're just taking things as they are. And that's why that, I don't really use that visual a lot when I do any type of training or try to tell people what's the difference between equality and equity, because the, the visual is somewhat helpful, but it's also somewhat stifling and constraining because it's still saying there's going to be a fence no matter what. There's still going to be systemic oppression no matter what. We just got to give people the right amount of boxes. <laughs> and when it comes to climate change, especially, there's not, there are not, there's not enough boxes to get us out of climate change. We need to meet these goals and we need to meet them now. And the, the majority of people that at least live in California really require these programs to help the state meet its goals. It's not the other way around. You know, it's not the goal that California needs to meet these goals for the community. The communities are helping California meet its goals as the sixth largest economy in this in the world. Mm. Um, So that's how I I differ between equity and then equitable uh, program process or product design. Wow. I love how you're basically shifting the lens and also alleviating the burden from the individual. And really what I'm hearing from you too is thinking of it as a partnership versus for lack of a better word, a hand-me-down. Yes. And I think that partnership approach really is, you know, what we need to be able to survive um, in this world. So thank you. Oh, yes. Of course. So... At this point, I'd love to hear in more detail and particularly, you know, it's, it's often I find in the actual design and execution that it's the hardest to really do things right, if you will, do things in a way that is equitable and is inclusive. And I'd love to hear more from you and do a deeper dive, ideally with some examples um, around our topic of what it takes to design and implement equitable programs. Yes. So yeah, the examples are always helpful <laughs> um, because you're not, doesn't really help until you're in the real world. So I also teach operations and supply chain management and I'll start with an example Um, I'll start with an example from class that I like, that I like to use, um, which is 
it's really important to think about the tools that we have been given and then how we want to leverage them. So in operations, we learn very basic tools and principles around productivity, quality assurance, you know, Six Sigma, lean management, total quality management, and, uh, you know, supply chain sustainability and things like that. And the one that I like to focus on is lean management in this example, because when we think about, and I, I use the chapter, we learn about lean management, Toyota production systems and Six Sigma and, you know, how, um, you know, how to leverage different statistical processes to ensure quality. And then I bring in um, readings from American prison. And I bring in these readings from American prison, specifically the chapters that go over how the prison system was built in this country Mm. to help students visualize and understand that it's really important to understand the power of these tools, of the tools of productivity and quality insurance and lean when we think about labor Mm -hmm. and when we think about, you know, building an economy based off of free labor and then having to sustain this economy that we've built based off of very, very cheap labor. And the, the chapters of the book go into detail on how the same plantations, some of these plantations actually turned into prisons. So plantations that at the end of the 19th century were closing down due to, um, um, you know, due to slavery being outlawed, uh, Emancipation Proclamation were actually bidding to be a state's prison. So then they were able to continue their production of cotton and other textiles and tobacco um, and keep up with, you know, the demand at the time. Um, But then also thinking about lean and labor, keeping in mind that you're trying to reduce waste. So when you're thinking about imprisoning people, how do you reduce waste? You inhibit those people from being outside of their cell because that's less people that have to be working the prison. It's less people you have to watch because they're all in a cell. That's less time that they need food and activities um, and you know things to do. So you're leaning for basic profit margins, you're leaning your business, which in this case is imprisoning human beings um, to meet, you know, market competition. So these, these tools are really powerful. And I use that example because without knowing the history of how these, how these processes, like the example of why government programs are so rigorous and strict, you can, you unfortunately unconsciously reinforce the systems and institutionalized policies and practices that have gotten us to this place in the first place. Um, So my second example is from work and we had a moment where we were, so as a part of centralized 
centralizing an application process, we are trying to centralize first the income verification process. So one thing that all of these programs have in common is that they require people to get their income verified, prove that they're poor. And so with centralizing the income verification process, we've had to really push back on some of the, what I would, what I would say are antiquated ways of thinking about a household. So we were told that we need to not only income verify the applicant to the program, so the, the main applicant to the program, which sometimes includes the person's spouse just because they share tax information. So that's, that makes sense. But we also needed to run income verification on anyone in the household that was over the age of 16. Mm. And I immediately said, this is racist. <laughs> and I said it was racist because I, I had, I've lived in Hawaii, I've lived in Asian households um, and in Asian culture and specifically Pacific Islander culture that I've experienced and the Japanese neighbors that I grew up with in Huntington Beach um, and the Chinese households I've witnessed um, having friends that are Chinese, intergenerational households is the norm. <laughs> it's, it's not even the norm, it's expected. It's expected that you either live with your family until you happen to have a family, you happen to have a family of your own. And once you have that family of your own, you might still live with your family because of, because it's not seen as, it's not seen as, you know, in the United States, it's like, oh, you're mooching off your family. It's like, you're staying close to your family. You're supporting your family. You want to love and be around your family all the time. So I immediately knew that if we needed to verify the income of everyone in a household that was over the age of 16, these climate benefit programs would not be accessible to intergenerational households. So I thought of it through the Asian perspective. My um, other my other colleague, who's actually the director of case management, he thought of it through the Latin, uh, the Latino Latina uh, household, and knowing that many times, especially in rural parts of Central Valley, California, students, even though they're in high school, they will start working over the summer. They will start working to support their household at the age of. As, as 14, 15, if they can, if younger, if they can, we won't speak to that, but they will try to help their household as soon as possible. So we knew that this was straight up racist. <laughs> we were like, this is racist um, to have to do this. And so we had to push back on our funder and we had to push back on the regulatory agency that we work with to say, this, this isn't appropriate and this is actually really harmful. You want us, you've been saying that you want these programs to be more accessible. This is number one way you can, this is one of the many ways you can make this a lot less accessible. And, um, you know, it's, it's not just the, the income piece, thinking about someone's household piece, but it's like rude. It's like, why would we be so invasive to say, all of the people in your household over the age of 16, we need their social security number. We need their tax documentation. We need to know how much money they're making. So again, going back to Nixon era, when it was appropriate to show up at a single woman's home that says she's a single woman and she needs welfare and go through her drawers 
to make sure there's no men's clothing in it. That's basically what we're trying to do. Hmm. So we, uh, the way that we combated this is um, I said, we need to do research. We need to put numbers to it. So we did a quick data project, took us about two weeks. And we looked up how many uh, intergenerational households were in the state of California. We cross and analyzed that by race, age, and zip code. And we got those numbers and it's high. <laughs> it's high. Um, of course it's high. Um, we had to do a little bit of, you know, cutting and chopping to get the American household survey and the, the, the census data to work with us. But regardless, it told the narrative, it showed in numbers the narrative that we were trying to say, which is a lot of people of color live in intergenerational households, especially now. Um, we were doing this in 2020. Um, so the data wasn't as recent, but we think about intergenerational households that maybe weren't, but now are because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, requiring your mom to come live with you for safety and also maybe for childcare <laughs> and help while you're trying to work from home or maybe you can't work from home, um, but you can't send your kid to ch childcare because it's closed. Um, so just thinking more about the humans, thinking more about the community um, in that sense, that data, our bluntness, I, I have, I've been very clear. I'm not afraid to say racist in a meeting. I'm not afraid to say black in a meeting. I'm not afraid to say that's going to harm certain people in a meeting. From my experience, you know, I try to use those I statements. Um, so in that example, we were able to push back on that requirement. That requirement is no longer needed. And it was a lot of energy, it was exhausting, but that's a perfect example of how an institutionalized practice or requirement can really be straight up racist and you know you can accept it, but if you're not thinking about it, if you're not being an intentional, like, hey, this is supposed to be equitable, this is supposed to be meeting these communities, that could have just slid right through. And you know, two years later, we have, you know, a $10 million statewide program that has a requirement that anyone that applies needs their entire household to be income verified. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that's an amazing example and really clear example of how maybe even good intentions create barriers by design. Yes. So I really appreciate all the energy you expended to make Thank that work. You. And I can also see how a lot of that takes time. It does. It does take time. And that's my last example, actually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Equity takes time. Mm -hmm. We didn't get here overnight. You know, we don't we don't see you know, for those that aren't in California you know, something you might want to Google is Cal and ViroScreen, and maybe you can put the, the link in the show notes, uh, Justine. Um, so if you look at the Cal and ViroScreen map, you're like, wow, this is great. This is showing where air quality is the worst in the state. You zoom in on, zoom in on Oakland Bay Area, zoom in on East Bay. Look at that map. Overlay the redlining map of East Bay. Same map. It 
this did not take, this took a long time to happen. So what we're seeing in our communities and for listeners that are familiar with this, this is speaking to the choir, but what we're seeing is a symptom of institutionalized practices from early 21st century. Mm -hmm. So a century later, 1920s, 30s, 1920s, 30s redevelopment through the 60s, and 1960s. We're seeing the symptoms of that and we're trying to switch the symptoms, you know, we're trying to like treat the symptoms of what happened a century ago right now. Mm -hmm. So when this third example is, it's not going to happen quick. If you want equitable outcomes, you have to have equity in the process and equity in the process takes a long time. You know why? Because this shit is fucked up. You might need to bleep that. I'm sorry. <laughs> but it's, we have, not only do we have to think about an innovative program process or product, we have to undo all of the racism in it. Mm -hmm. You should put how to be an anti-racist in the show notes too. You can edit that out. But it's not just, oh, we need to create an equitable program. We have to create an equitable anti-racist program on top of that. Mm -hmm. So in the previous example, oh, you know, we're just trying to make sure there's no freeloaders on the program. It's like, okay, not only do I have to tell you that's stupid, but now I have to prove to you that's stupid through data and narrative and experience. And this third example, um, time is of the essence but this is a marathon not a sprint and the decisions that we make today will impact possibly a century later mm. we're not just trying to meet uh, what i try to tell my team is that we're not trying to just meet grant deliverables or project deliverables we're also trying to build a culture a completely different culture of what a government climate a government benefit program is mm -hmm. and who it's supposed to meet how it's supposed to be designed and how it's how it is supposed to be implemented we have another set of projects that i lead and they want to move really fast and I mean, when I say they want to move fast, they, we not even contract and they're telling us we need to do, we need, oh, the, the, the lane, the funding, the climate benefit program is going to open. We got, we got the initial funding, I think in March, they want the, they want the program to launch in July. <laughs> and let's just say this is a quarter of a billion dollars that they're trying to get rid of. So a quarter of a billion dollars that's supposed to meet certain communities that a century ago were bulldozed, redeveloped with freeways, and now we're garnering the, the terrible symptoms of living next to those freeways. We have two months, we have three months to figure out how to expend all this money to make sure, but make sure it meets those communities. So Again, you know, I, I, my dad's a history teacher, so I can't help but bring in history, but I think it's so important, especially now when we have so many folks speaking about equity um, and how to be anti-racist, how to really uh, recover from the last century of ter terribly racist institutional practices. I say racist, but I'm speaking from race, but I live in three intersections, so it's 
racist, sexist, and homophobic practices that we live within, um, it's not gonna, it, it can't happen in months. So claim the power where we can. I do my best in this example, I've dragged my feet where I could. So we had to write a rubric. I was like, okay, we'll write the rubric. When is it due? It's due in two weeks. Oh God, okay started the draft of the rubric, and then I immediately emailed our community partners. We had a check-in with our funder that week. I was like, well, I emailed the community partners and they haven't gotten back to me yet. So dragged my feet, got their insight, amazing insight. And I apologized uh, so much that I was like, I'm so sorry, this is only a week's notice. I'm so sorry that you can't give more feedback because the feedback that you're giving on how we score the applications for this, uh, for this funding is so important because the things that you're calling out are like, um, are major. If you don't understand, we, we might be putting out an application that our tribal reservations aren't able to even um, take advantage of because they're like, why would I need a letter? For example, why would I need a letter of support if I'm the tribal office on my tribal reservation? The letter of support is me. <laughs> my community said we need electric vehicle charging. And so we need electric vehicle charging. I don't need a letter of support from residents to say that. Like we are the we are the community office for this community. Um, so those little nuances we wanted to make sure we're a part of designing the, the application for quarter of a billion dollars worth of charging infrastructure in the state of California. Um, so drag your, I, the, this example is really like drag your feet where you can. We use the word innovation a lot when it comes to like technology and Google and Microsoft and like shiny Chrome things, but innovation is started in community activism, advocacy, and coalition building. Montgomery bus boycott, most innovative uh, protests I've seen. Black Lives Matter, amazingly innovative protests. Occupy, Occupy, amazing protests. Innovative. Why don't we just shut it down, you know? So really grounding in what our communities have seen and what they have leveraged to be heard um, are some of the principles and tools that I bring into my day-to-day -day work. So and this example of like dragging my feet, I kept going saying, hey, you want the community to benefit? I'm talking to the community. <laughs> so community is a little bit slower. You didn't give me enough budget to give out money when I asked for feedback. So it's taken some time. Um, so we dragged our feet. We got an extra week, um, which isn't much. But we also got in writing that we will come back to the table before the next time the applications open. So it's a three-year program. So each time we're gonna reiterate and each time we hope to, the next time especially, we really hope to um, uh, implement a user-centered universal design process where it's we start with the community before we, we do anything. Because you'd be surprised, maybe you're not surprised, Justine, you're not surprised, but maybe some listeners are surprised so much money is spent through a room of four or five people designing these programs. 
and they're not, they're really not always sitting with how much power they have when they're designing a multi-million dollar benefits program. Mm -hmm. And they're not taking it as their responsibility to excavate their own bias, the bias in the room and what they might be missing because they might not have that lived experience of the people that the benefit program is supposed to uh, serve. Mm-hmm. So that was the third example. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. It really, you know, you and I have both seen well-intentioned programs that are poorly designed and poorly executed and don't lead to the results we need. It really makes me pause what you said about what I'm doing or, or deciding today could have ramifications in 20, 50, 100 years. And that really makes can make you pause and think about, well, maybe, yes, I'll take a few more weeks right now to think through this, to get that input. And I keep thinking, for me, what keeps coming up as an imagery that is really strong around bringing as many voices and diverse voices to the table is it was a photo and I don't remember who took it, but it was all white men around the table making decisions around women's rights, of reproductive rights specifically. And I feel like that's a powerful image enough that hopefully speaks to everyone. Um, so if you transpose that to all these other decisions, like who is at the table and who isn't. And I, I appreciate all the examples you really gave. They make it concrete. And I think they hopefully will um, get our listener, listeners pondering on how they can show up differently and collaborate differently. What's coming up with for me right now is also the amount of energy that it's taking to shift the system and completely shift the mindset, which doesn't happen overnight. And I'd love to hear, you know, what helps you preserve yourself, preserve this motivation to keep fighting? That's a good question. (laughs) Visit my friends like Justine (laughs) and her cute dog. Um, I, so, you know, it's, it's the perfect analogy, but, and it should be said over and over. This is a marathon, not a sprint. So really slowing down, it's okay to slow down. Um, I think that in this hyper productive society, especially now that a lot of us work from home, um, this performative productivity is really easy to fall into. Um, something that I have been building within my team's culture is just humanism and really sitting with there will never be a morning for some people. They can wake up every morning and they're ready to go. And they're like, got my routine down and it's all good. (laughs) You know, they can get up every morning. It's the same thing. Make my coffee read my, you know, read my book or read my paper, get on Slack, get on, get my, start doing my work. And 
that's okay. Um, but also it's okay to wake up every morning feeling a little different. I wake up some mornings and I'm like, yes, let's do it. And then I wake up some mornings and I'm like, I need another hour of sleep. And I wake up some mornings where I'm really sad. Um, and that's okay. Um, something that, you know, a book that listeners should, um, you know, at least glance at, it's a really short read is, um, by Sylvia Federici. It's called beyond the periphery of skin. And I also assign it to my students, uh, in operations class, because it really speaks to how the human body since the, since the inception of capitalism, the human body has been pushed further and further towards being non-human started with the enslavement of humans. Um, and since then, we, uh, you know, since free labor can no longer exist, even though it still does, um, there is this constant reflection of how you can be less like a human and more like a robot, mm -hmm. how you can be less of need of doing things that are what a human needs to do to feel whole and more of how you can be productive. There is a reason why there are tons of pro productivity apps, Asana, Monday, ClickUp, all of these different apps coming out of how you can be productive. So many, um, so many articles and podcasts and news segments on how to increase your productivity while you're at home, while you're working from home, how not to get distracted. And all of those are subconsciously reminding you of what, why do you need to do these things um, and how you should be selling your labor. Hmm. And capitalism is, you know, we speak about capitalism like it's its own being. It kind of is. Capitalism is meant to make you a gear in the system. So either you're giving your labor or you're buying someone else's labor. Mm. So you either need to be giving your labor or buying someone else's labor. And truly liberated, you know, for me as a as for me, being truly liberated is reclaiming my time. Mm. Thank you, Miss Waters, you know, mm -hmm. and saying like, I don't, I want to watch TV. <laughs> I want to play with my cat. I want to do crafts. I want to do all these things for me. I don't, you know, I love making cards and people are like, oh, Tria, you should sell your cards. I'm like, no, <laughs> I don't want to sell it. Because I want to do, this is for me. This is not for the market. This is not for anyone else other than the people that I love and what nourishes my soul. I love making, I love doing ceramics and I don't have any plans of having a ceramic store. I'm like, I just make ceramics because it's the only thing that I can do that I can't, that requires me to turn off all technology. You're so messy when you do ceramics, you, you shouldn't be touching anything that is expensive. You should just be touching clay and that's it. <laughs> um, so the ways that I sustain myself, preserve my spirit and my soul really come from finding ways to distance myself from capitalism and re-embody and embody myself. 
um, taking time. You know, we went on a walk while I was out there um, a couple of weeks ago and you said, you know, the, the, the impact of just being in nature, feeling the wind, hearing the leaves, um, looking at the water, looking at what exists without us, mm-hmm. without us doing anything to it. Um, that reminder of being interdependent while also being independent um, are, is another way that I try to sustain myself and really recognize like at, you know, at the root of all of this, if we ground in truth, we don't need any of this. We just need our community. You know, if we really want to think about what is required on this planet to be okay, it's community. That's why we're still discovering people that live completely remote without technology, without um, modern, contemporary anything. And that's because really all you need is your community, love and existence. So I tried to center around that and distance, like I said, distance myself from capitalism and embody what, what this uh, body needs and what it's yearning for, which in many times is just creativity and rest. <laughs> it's pretty simple for me. Yeah. But those bills, <laughs> but those bills, but we have, you know, and that's the, that's the, that's the true exhaustion, mm-hmm. you know, is living in the dichotomy of having to exist within a system that was built off of the bodies of my ancestors and then also try to liberate myself at the same time. So I, you know, there's, those are the moments I wake up in the morning and I'm sad because it's like, I'm requiring, I'm reinforcing this system while I'm also trying to build something different. So that's really the true exhaustion. It's not really the day-to-day work of like emails, <laughs> even though those are really annoying sometimes. It's the um, pull of wanting to live in that future that we know is so close while also having to reinforce the present that requires us to sell our labor and buy things that we really don't want to buy, but we, we have to buy them to to then sell our labor, <laughs> to then continue the continue the cycle. So, Taria, I so appreciate this conversation, your authenticity, uh, the work you're doing. I know I still grapple um, daily. I'd say with decoupling my worth from my productivity mm-hmm. and showing up authentically. I was taught that you know there's your work self and your private self. And so really, you know, as someone who didn't grow up in the US, but still in a capitalistic society, I'm extra challenged here by the productivity. And I find, like you said, you monetize everything. And I appreciate that you pushed me to do this podcast because I was overthinking it. And at the end of the day, I just wanted to do it because I wanted to have these conversations. So thank you. You're welcome.